Thank you, Pastor. Go ahead and be opening your Bibles to perhaps the most famous passage in the entire Old Testament. We're going to be in the 23rd Psalm, not the 23rd chapter of Psalms. Psalms doesn't have chapters, it has individual psalms, they're individual hymns. Just like you don't turn in your hymnal to hymns number 64, you turn, don't turn in the book of Psalms to Psalms 23, you turn to Psalm 23. Perhaps the most famous Old Testament passage in the Word of God. It is the one passage that even lost people seem to, uh, to, seem to acknowledge exists. Most of the Word of God, they pretend like it doesn't exist, but they do pretend like the, the 23rd Psalm exists. If you watch any kind of Hollywood entertainment and somebody dies and there's a graveside service, almost invariably somebody is reading the very same 23rd Psalm. And a lot of people are familiar with it. A lot of Christians would be very familiar with it, even lost people in the auditorium and listening on the radio and online, you would be familiar with the 23rd Psalm. But most people who are familiar with it do not, aren't familiar with the background of it. it uh, David is the king, he's the human penman for this passage of Scripture. And David is going through a trial, most likely very late in his life. And the greatest trial, of course, that David went through late in his life was the rebellion and the civil war caused by his son Absalom. Remember, Absalom and David had been estranged from one another. Absalom had murdered his half-brother Amnon, who was actually the, the heir apparent to the throne of the nation of Israel. And Absalom had murdered him and then fled because David wanted to kill him. And after a while, they have a little bit of a reunion and things on the outside look like they're fine, but on the inside they're not. Absalom is rebellious against his father. He begins to sit on the steps and his people would come in to be judged by King David. As they would walk out, Absalom had the unique ability to take the side of the plaintiff and the defendant. He was on the prosecution and the defendant's side at the same time. In other words, he talked out of both sides of his mouth very successfully, which means, of course, in 2022, he would be a successful politician. Soon the hearts of the people of Israel begin to turn toward Absalom, and Absalom leads a rebellion against his father. Even the armies turn with Absalom against David. David does not want a civil war, even though he has an army as well, to take place in the city of Jerusalem. So he flees the city of Jerusalem with the remnant of his army. As you pick up the 23rd Psalm, David is fleeing from his own son that is out to kill him. He's not sleeping in the palace on a comfortable bed. He does not have a throne to sit on. He is not holding a scepter in his hand. The crown is not resting on his head. He is fleeing. He's living on the ground with a stone for a pillow in a tent or in a cave. Everything has been wrenched from him and he wakes up every morning glad to know that his own son did not kill him during the night. It's certainly a dark trial in the life of David, and we all understand dark trials, do we not? There's not a person in this room that hasn't faced dark trials, not a person listening over the airwaves that hasn't faced dark trials. We understand that with David. But there's a difference about David's trial in this case, especially this trial doesn't have a good outcome. There is no silver lining here around these dark clouds. There is nothing that could happen that would spark everything to be wonderful in the life of David. If David is to ever go back and sit on the throne of the nation of Israel like he has been called to do by Almighty God, it's going to come at the expense of his own son's life. 
So, oh no, Brother Harper, David could stop people from killing Absalom. Remember this carefully. David did try to stop people from killing Absalom. He made an order that no one was supposed to kill him. That didn't stop Absalom from hanging from a tree by his own hair with darts stuck in his heart as he bleeds to death. You want to know how David felt about losing his son? Read what happens when the messenger comes back and tells David that his son is dead. And David begins to weep and to cry. And he says, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, would God I had died for thee, is what he said. It was so bad that his commanding officer, Joab, pulls him aside and says, Your Highness, it's disrespectful for you to weep more for the enemy than you're weeping for the soldiers that we lost. If Absalom is to live, David will not. If Absalom's to live, David will certainly never sit on the throne of the nation of Israel again. Absalom has proven through his rebellion that he's going to do everything he can to hurt and embarrass and humiliate and even kill his own father, David. So there is no good outcome. Either Absalom is going to die or David is going to die. Not only, though, is it a dark trial that David is facing. Not only is it a trial that truly does not have a good outcome. But there's a third thing about this trial in the life of David. It's all David's fault. You say, Brother Harper, what do you mean by that? Well, remember when David had committed sin, adultery with Bathsheba, and sinned against Uriah the Hittite. And uh, remember, after all of that, Nathan the prophet shows up to David's house. And he says, David, let me tell you a little story. There's a man that has lots of flocks. He's very wealthy. And he lives next door to a poor man who has one little ewe lamb that eats at his table and sleeps in his bed. I'm here to tell you something. If you have an animal that eats at your table and sleeps sleeps at your bed. That is not livestock. That's a pet. And when the rich man had company come in, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and he slaughtered it and he fed it to his guests. David became incensed. And he said, that man should repay fourfold. Do you realize this? David murders one man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. David will stand over four of his own son's graves. He repaid fourfold. Yes, David has confessed his sin. Yes, his sin has even been forgiven. But understand this, Christian. Sin always has consequences even after it's been forgiven. David knows when Absalom dies, it'll be because of his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite. Imagine the moment now David is sleeping on the ground, wondering what's going to happen next, worried for his own life, fearful for his soldiers, fearful for his kingdom. He walks into the tent or in the cave or ever with his head down. And as he walks in, he does what you and I do every time we go through a dark trial. Every time you lose a loved one, every time someone is sick, what do we talk about? We talk about the good old days. Oh, remember when things were much better. Remember when things were happy and glorious. Remember those good old days. David goes into the tent or the cave and he begins to remember the good old days. Oh, back before Absalom rebelled, but even back before he became king over the nation of Israel, even back before he was anointed king over the tribe of Judah, and even back before he led the armies of King Saul and the people rejoiced when he came into town. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Even back before that day, he went down in the valley and stood toe-to-toe with the giant. And even back before the day that Samuel came to his house and anointed him the next king over the nation of Israel. Back to the good old days. Back when he was just a shepherd boy. 
back when every day he got up early in the morning and took his father's sheep up into the shepherd's fields just outside of Bethlehem and watched those sheep all, sheep all day. How simple was life? Yeah, there were trials. There were wolves and there were bears and there were lions, all of those things. But the life was so much simpler, so much easier. There wasn't a rebellion. There wasn't an army to lead. It was just the good old days. And as David smiled fondly, remembering when he was a shepherd, as David so often did, his thoughts turned from David and turned to the Lord. He began to think of the Lord as his shepherd. I'm here to tell you something. Christian and lost person alike, everything changes in your entire life when you look at it through the eyes of the shepherd. Everything changes when you stop looking at it from the inside and looking at it through his eyes. Let me tell you something. At the beginning of this psalm, David is sleeping on the ground with a rock for a pillow and a son out to kill him. At the end of this psalm, David is sleeping on the ground with a rock for a pillow and his son out to kill him. Nothing changes in David's circumstances in this entire psalm. But as David takes his eyes off of everything else and puts them on the shepherd, everything changes. If you're a Christian, you cannot read this psalm without being encouraged. If you're a lost person, let me warn you about this for just a second. As much encouragement as these words may seem to be to you, if you're a lost person, not one single promise in all of the 23rd Psalm applies to you. You have no promise to claim, nothing to hold on to in this psalm. As encouraging as the words come across off the page, they do not apply to you. But let me give you the best news I can possibly give you to start. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, did you know that the instant, the very instant that you receive Him as your Savior, you get Him as your shepherd too. Every promise of Psalm 23 becomes yours to cherish and to cling to during times of trial. But this morning I do want to warn you there are several points to this message. Each one of them is about 14 or 15 minutes long. I think there are eight points, so if you're doing the math we're in trouble. But I do want to warn you, I'm not going to preach on every individual word from this psalm, although for the first part of the message, you might think that's going to happen. You might be sitting there in about 12 or 13 minutes saying, I think he was right about that 14 minutes per point thing, but I'm not, I'm exaggerating. But I want you to look at this incredible passage of Scripture. And of course, every passage of Scripture is incredible. This one just seems to lift us up more than the average passage of Scripture. Psalm 23, beginning in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness, paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to preach a simple message tonight, entitled, this morning, entitled, The Lord is My Shepherd. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for our time together in your house. Lord, thank you for the beautiful music that we've heard, the soul-stirring choir number, and Father, the special Father, and I, I just ask that you have, you, have, you have used all of that to prepare our hearts for the preaching. Father, if there are those out there that do not know your Son as their personal Savior, Father, I pray that today they will. Father, there are Christians out there that need encouraging. I pray this passage will encourage them. But there are Christians out there that need to be convicted. I pray the passage will do that. 
Father, I pray for the young lady I was asked to pray for last night by the name of Ray. Father, that you, you be with her family today as she is in the hospital. But Father, I pray now that you'll help us as we turn our attention just to this passage of Scripture. Have your will and your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice how the psalm begins. You can't start the psalm without the first word, can you? T-H-E, the. The Lord is my shepherd. I do want you to know this, that David does not say, a Lord is my shepherd. He does not say, some Lord is my shepherd. He does not say, some lords are my shepherd. He does not say, everyone is finding their own path to the shepherd. He says nothing of the case. Because number one, I want you to notice that I have a particular shepherd. Second, uh, First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Lord says this in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord. Beside me there is none other. I want you to think about this for just a moment. I don't mean to offend anyone listening anywhere when I say this, but understand this. Allah is not God. Buddha is not God. Joseph Smith is not God. The Pope is not the vicar of Christ on planet earth. What I'm trying to tell you is there is only one God. There is only one Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. David doesn't hint at that. It seems like such an uh, insignificant word starting off with a definite article, but it's not insignificant, is it? The Lord is my shepherd. Number one, I have a particular shepherd. Number two, I want you to notice this second word in the psalm. You'll notice as you look at it carefully that it is typeset differently than every other word in the psalm. You'll notice it is spelled with four capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament in your Bible, what you are reading is the translator's way of telling you that the word that goes there in Hebrew is the word Yahweh or Yahweh. We say Jehovah. In other words, it tells us a whole lot about our God when it's four capitals. There are lots of different things that the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh has to do with the Lord. But one of the things that it certainly indicates is that not only do I have a particular shepherd, but number two, I have a perfect shepherd. He never made a sin, never made an error, never made a mistake. As one preacher put it, he never went any place he wasn't supposed to go, never said anything he wasn't supposed to say, never did anything he wasn't supposed to do, and never thought anything he wasn't supposed to think. My Bible tells me over and over that I have a perfect shepherd. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, and yet without sin. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or Hebrews 7 and verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Or 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold received by tradition from the vain conversations of your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blood blemish and without spot. You say, Brother Harper, that's what you're supposed to say. You're a preacher. You're a Christian. You should believe that he's perfect. Wait a minute. It's not just me. It's in John chapter 19 and verse 4 when a lost man named Pontius Pilate brings a beaten Savior out to introduce him to the Jews. And he says, therefore I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. It's a lost thief hanging on the cross in Luke chapter 23 beginning in verse 
39, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. What I am trying to tell you is, Christian and lost person alike, I have a perfect Savior tonight. I have a perfect shepherd this morning. You know what that means to the child of God? That means whatever trial, tribulation we're going through didn't happen by accident. It is important for us to always remember that COVID did not catch God by surprise. The perfect shepherd. Number one, I have a particular shepherd. Number two, I have a perfect shepherd. But don't you love the third word? The Lord is. If David were like me and you, you know what he would have said? You know, I remember that day. I went down in that valley of Elah and I stood toe to toe with Goliath and God guided my stone and the giant fell there dead. And I cut his head off and the Israelites won a great victory on that day. Boy, I have to tell you, on that day, boy, he sure was a good shepherd on that day. Or the day Saul grabbed the javelin was going to pin me to the wall and God moved me out of the way. <laughs> I have to tell you, he sure was a good shepherd on that day. Or the day they anointed me king in Hebron for seven and a half years. He sure was a good shepherd on that day. The day they anointed me king over Israel. Boy, he sure was a good shepherd on that day. Boy, God sure was a good shepherd. Isn't that how we talk often? Or we would understand if he were more like us and said this. You know what? If tomorrow I woke up and we looked outside and here came uh, Absalom riding, waving a white flag of truce. And he and I sat down and we talked and we worked out a peace agreement. And he hugged my neck and I hugged his neck. And I told him, I love you, son. He said, I love you, daddy. And we marched back into the city of Jerusalem. Him leading his army, me leading in my army. I'm going to sit on the kingly throne. He's going to sit beside of me as the heir apparent, the crown prince of the nation of Israel. Boy, oh boy, if God did that, he sure would be a good shepherd, wouldn't he? That's not what David says. The Lord is sleeping on the ground with a rock for a pillow with the sun trying to kill him. David says right now, he's still my shepherd. Whatever I'm going through, he's still my shepherd. He is the present shepherd. The old song says this, Just when I need him most, just when I need him most, Jesus is near to comfort and cheer just when I need him most. Or Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help win in time of need. I have a present shepherd. Whatever you're going through, whatever trial you're facing, or whatever trial you're going to face tomorrow, he's still the present shepherd, isn't he? I have a particular shepherd. I have a perfect shepherd. I have a present shepherd. But I have to tell you, the fourth word of this psalm is my favorite word in the entire psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Listen, if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I am happy as I can possibly be for you. I'm thrilled beyond, no, beyond words to tell you that my wife and daughter and my son-in-law all profess Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That is a great joy. I am thrilled that Jesus loves the whole world. I am overwhelmed with excitement about that. I love that old song. Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in His sight. Ever hear the other versions of that song? 
English, Scotch, Irish, and Jew, Russian, and Italian too. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Or how about this version? Orange, purple, pink, and green. Strangest kids you've ever seen. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I am overjoyed that he loves the whole world. But there is no greater personal truth that has ever been uttered by mortal tongue than that simple Sunday school song from the 1800s that says this, Jesus loves me. Joy floods my soul, for Jesus hath saved me. Freed me from sin, which long had enslaved me. Lifted me up from sorrow and shame, and now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Now let me tell you something. It makes sense, doesn't it? Think about this as a Christian. It makes sense for us to stand down here on planet Earth and look up toward the perfection of heaven. Look up toward our nail-pierced hand Savior sitting on the right hand of the Father and saying, oh, he's my shepherd. That makes sense. Why people as wicked as us would claim a perfect Savior. But do you know what doesn't make sense? I'll never understand it till I get to heaven. Is how he, in his perfection, in his holiness, in his righteousness, can look down from heaven and see me and you and say, I claim you too. It makes sense for me to claim him. It doesn't make sense for him to claim me, does it? What did he say in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No man can take them out of, my, out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is greater than my, uh, no, and no man is greater than my Father. I and my Father are one. The simple truth of it is, he says we're his sheep. It makes sense for me to say he's my shepherd. It doesn't make sense. It's beyond words to describe the grace that makes him say, you're my sheep. Notice number one, I have a particular shepherd, a present shepherd. I have a perfect shepherd. I have a personal shepherd. Number five, quickly, I have a providing shepherd. I shall not want. I told you I wasn't going to preach on every word. You feel better now? I shall not want. He provides. What does he provide? He maketh me to lie down. He provides rest, doesn't he? Have you ever noticed how some people are involved in every single ministry? They work a full-time job. They have all those responsibilities, but they're involved in every ministry at Central Baptist Church. And every time pastor says, well, we need some men to help with this, they're the first hands that go up. And you come, and you're in church, and you're working a full-time job, and you go to church every time the doors are open. But finally, you say, I'm going to volunteer for something, too. And you'll volunteer for one thing. And after you volunteered for that, you are exhausted for four days. You ever notice that happen? Do you know why that is? Because the Bible doesn't say, come unto me all you that sit on the sidelines and get occasionally involved and I will give you rest. Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. Heard a southern preacher in the mountains of Tennessee talking about that, uh, take my yoke upon you. And he said this in his, his Tennessee vernacular, excuse the, the improper grammar. He said this, did you ever stop and think that if you're in the yoke with Jesus, you ain't the one doing the pulling? <laughs> That's good right there. Yeah. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The simple truth is, the more you do for the Lord, the more energy you have to do more for the Lord. You say, Brother Harper, that does not make any sense at all. Neither does walking on water. The truth of the matter is, he'll give you rest. Sheep do not rest unless they're completely comfortable. He maketh me to lie down. He gives me refreshment. Two things that sheep have to have to live. Grass and water. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Isn't it a beautiful picture to just close your eyes and picture that setting? The plush green grass, the beautiful still water. See, a really good shepherd might lead his sheep to a babbling brook, but a perfect shepherd leads them to perfectly still waters. A really good shepherd might take some of their sheep to a place where there's plenty of grass, but our Savior takes us to a place of nothing but green pastures all around. Amen. He provides rest and refreshment and restoration. He restoreth my soul. You ever need your soul restored? You get up on Monday morning and you go to work, and of the 12 people that work in your office, Four of them are sick. The boss still wants everything done that would have been done by all 12. So you work harder that day. You get home from work a little bit tired, waiting to see if dinner is on the table, only to find out that your wife and all three of your children now have the flu. And everybody is all curled up in bed with humidifiers running, and the whole house smells like Vicks VapoRub when you walk in. You make yourself a sandwich and try to stay away because you don't want to get sick. You've got to go to work the next day. You go to work the next day. You find out that of the 12 people in your office, now seven of them are sick. The list of things to do is just the same length it was when the 12 of you were supposed to be there. You dread all day long, but you're working all through lunch, except you try to run over to a McDonald's and go through a drive through only to realize after you've sat there, placed your order and pulled to the window that you left your wallet back at the office. You finally get home. Now everybody is almost at death's door. They're so sick in your house. The whole house has this ominous feel to it when you walk in. It's dark and it's quiet except for the sneezing and the sniffling and the snorting that's going on in the bedrooms. You get up the next morning and you go to work and you find out that you're the only one there. Even the boss isn't there. But he still left the list long enough for 12 people to do it. On the way home from work, you have a flat tire. Finally, you get home and you say to yourself, there is one thing for sure. One thing I can guarantee you, I am not going to church tonight. I'm staying home. You have plenty of excuses. But you say, you know what? I'm not going to forsake the assembling of myself together. And you get up and you come to church anyway. And your pastor gets up and you're exhausted and he starts to preach. After the singing's already uplifted your heart and the preaching begins to stir you. And by the time you go home from, war, uh, from church that night, your soul got restored. Want to see a Bible example of it? Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter th in Lamentations chapter 3 says this. He says that the Lord uh, has shot arrows into my heart. He says, Thou hast broken out all my teeth with gravel stones. The picture is that God held Jeremiah down, filled his mouth up with rocks, and made him chew till all that's left was bloody gums in his mouth. Then Jeremiah's soul gets restored right before your very eyes. He says, Therefore these things call I to my mind. Therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. For his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How do you go from accusing God of making you chew gravel till your teeth fall out to singing about his grace, his compassion, his mercy, and his faithfulness because your soul got restored. Amen. He restoreth my soul. 
Then he leads me, he provides me righteousness. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Isn't this us, Christian? Someone says, well, on Thursday night, we're going to have a big party after work. We sure would like to have you come. And uh, it's just going to be some drinking there that you shouldn't be involved in and things like that. But, but it's still going to be a good time, and you probably ought to be there. And you, you have this way. You look down, and you start drawing figure eights with your feet like that. You're like, well, I can't go. I'm a Christian. No, no, Christian. It's not a drudgery to be on the path of righteousness. It's the safest place in the entire world. If I'm on the path of righteousness, I'm surrounded by green pastures and still waters, not thickets, not hills, not rolling, rolling rapids. I'm not surrounded by wolves. I'm surrounded by a shepherd that's going to take care of me. It's not drudgery. I should not be saying, oh, I can't do what the world's going to do. I'm so miserable. I'm not allowed to have any fun. Listen, let me tell you something. If everybody goes out and gets drunk on Thursday, on Thursday night, they're going to wake up sick. We're going to come to church on Thursday night, and none of us will have a hangover on Friday morning. The simple truth is we've made it sound like, and this is not the world's fault, we've made it sound like the Christian life is nothing but drudgery when the Christian life is a path of green pastures and still waters walking along with our shepherd. What could be a better place to be than that? Amen. Notice number one, I have a particular shepherd, a perfect shepherd, a present shepherd, a personal shepherd, a providing shepherd. Then I got a protecting shepherd. Now, I don't know how it's happened. But every Bible college, every book on homiletics, everything out there that teaches someone how to preach has instructed people that they're supposed to read that first, fourth verse like this, and you've heard it before. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that sounds terrible. I'm here to tell you, I don't want to go there. That's, that, that's not a good sounding place to me. There are two interpretations to that. One is there is a place, it's a seven mile uh, trek that goes down uh, up the mountain into Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem that it's filled with robbers and pillagers and plunderers and things of that nature. And they do, or they did, call it the valley of the shadow of death. Many people believe that's where the good Samaritan finds the man beaten up on the side of the road and takes good care of him. And so that, that certainly was a real place that did exist. You can still go and see the remnants of it. But my problem with that is I've never seen anything that tells me it was called that 3,000 years ago when David would have written this. My personal belief is David is actually coming face to face with his own mortality. Remember how many times Solomon woke up, Saul woke up and found out that David had been there during the night? If David woke up and saw Absalom there, David, Absalom would not be as gracious to David as David had been to King Saul. He's saying, this might be it. You hear people make comments about this, and they're correct, that you can't have a shadow without a bright light on the other side. That is true. Matthew Henry tells you this, that a, a shadow can't hurt you. A snake can bite you and poison you. A lion can bite you and devour you. But the shadow of a snake isn't poisonous. And the shadow of a lion doesn't have any teeth. The truth of the matter is we're just facing the valley of the shadow of death. But that's not even what it's saying. David isn't saying, oh, woe is me. My whole life is miserable. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He's saying this. If I go through the absolute worst thing imaginable, well, fear no evil. 
This is not, yea, though I walk. He's like, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm still not going to be afraid. He's saying, if things get even worse than they are right now, it's still not going to scare me. Why? For thou art with me. What a promise. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us. Lo, I'm with you always, even in the world, Matthew 28 and verse 20. The simple truth is, we have nothing to be afraid of as long as he is with us. The real fear comes when we've gotten away from Him. That's when we should be afraid. He says, I'm, I've got a protecting shepherd. He protects me with His presence and His power. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now we know what a staff is. That's that little crooked thing that shepherds always carry. You always see the pictures of them with it. And a little, uh, the staff would be used if someone would, a little lamb would get off the path. He would hook it by the leg or by the shoulder or by the, uh, by, by the neck and pull it back on the path. And the lamb would be okay for a little while. Then the lamb would get off again. He'd pull it again. And have you ever had the Lord use the staff on you? You're about ready to make a decision. You're sitting there reading your devotions. And all of a sudden it's as if the Bible says, that's a pretty dumb decision you're about to make. It doesn't actually say that. But as you're reading it, that's exactly what the Lord says to you as he pulls you back with the staff. But sometimes... The shepherd has to use the rod. Now, he does use the rod to protect against enemies. And as we were talking about Revelation chapter 19 briefly this morning, Revelation 19 tells us that our shepherd has a rod of iron. <laughs> but the rod's a thicker piece of wood that's not only used on the enemies every now and then, it's used on the sheep. That little lamb getting off the path, the staff pulls him back. Gets off the path, the staff pulls him back. But gets off the path, the shepherd uses the staff to pull him back. But after three or four times, the shepherd would take the rod, a heavier piece of wood, and with the right amount of strength, the right amount of force, he would go on that little lamb's head. And that little lamb would say, Ow, I don't think I'm going to get off the path anymore. Listen, Christian, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The truth of the matter is, if the Lord hasn't hit you on the head with the rod in a while, there's a problem with your Christian life. It's not with Him. You're just ignoring when He's trying to get your attention. He said, the rod and the staff comfort. He protects me with His presence and with His power. Quickly, please. Not only do I have a perfect and a providing and a present and a personal and a, 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 and a, a protecting shepherd, but I also have a preparing shepherd. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And then he says this, my, uh, thou anointest my head with oil. Now this phrase is not talking about being anointed king. It's talking about being blessed. David says, you just keep blessing me. And then he says something, I will be as transparent as possible. I have never said, my cup runneth over. He says, Lord, you are blessing me too much. Have you ever said that? Has it ever crossed your mind? Oh, we say that oftentimes. Well, the Lord's just too good for me. If the Lord's any better, I'd have to be twins. All kinds of stuff like that. But have you ever gotten down on your knees in your prayer closet and said, Dear Lord, please stop blessing me for a while. You're blessing me too much. We've never done that. I would never do that. When God's blessings are just rolling on us, what do we do? We back up, we get a bigger bucket, and we say, Come on, Lord, a few more months of this is great. David said, Lord, you've blessed me so much that I can't even take it anymore. Growing up, my great uncle pastored a church in a holler outside of Charleston, West Virginia. Chandler's Branch was the name of the holler, and yes, it was a holler. It was a country church. Uh, everything you can think about in a country church, they had. Now, please don't ask me if they had snakes. They didn't have snakes, at least not that I ever saw. 
But my, my great uncle would stand up as one of those fly by the seat of your pants kind of churches. And he would say to the pianist, Mrs. Jones, before I preach, won't you come to the piano and sing that song I like? And she would get up and say that famous phrase, y'all pray for me. I've not, I've, I ain't practiced much. We know you ain't practiced much. He just asked you to do it two seconds ago. You didn't have to say that. And so she would sing that song. And she sang the same song a couple of times that I heard. And everybody's going to try to look it up on YouTube. It is not on YouTube. What you're going to find is not the right song. But still, I'll just warn you about that before you waste your time. But anyway, she would sing this song. And one of the phrases in the song said this, I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup is running over. That's what David's saying. Notice carefully, please. He's still sleeping on the ground. Absalom has not surrendered. There is no peace. There is no palace. There is no pomp. There's nothing like that. He's running from his, for his own life, from his own son. And what does he say in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the conflict, in the middle of the trial? You are too good! Would that we said that. We praise him on the mountaintop and complain in the valley because we clearly have forgotten that you can't have a mountaintop without having a valley. The two cannot exist apart from each other. Simple truth is, David says, Wow, Lord, you're so good to me. Now, this is an incredible psalm, isn't it? My perfect, my particular, perfect, present, personal, providing, protecting, and preparing shepherd. But it has to end, for those of you that are, are musical, it has to end with the crescendo has to end with the, the timpani and the, the cymbals crashing. It has to end with the hallelujah chorus. It has to end with something huge, doesn't it? I want you to notice, lastly, it's permanent. My shepherd is. Notice this first promise. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You take 10 minutes to think about that one. You'll realize that's a pretty incredible promise, isn't it? You picture David's men. David, look, someone's behind us. Let me look, let me look. Oh, oh no, it's just goodness and mercy. They're always back there. But as wonderful as that promise is, I heard one preacher say, goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our life. That's when it catches us at the end. But the truth is, that promise, as wonderful as it is, has an expiration date, doesn't it? Goodness and mercy shall follow me. How long? All the days of my life. Here's the truth. Every person right now, this morning, has one less day of goodness and mercy following you than you had yesterday. It's just that simple. That's a great promise, but it's not big enough to end this psalm. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I told you uh, during the announcements, I was here, I believe the date was January the 28th. It's about 12... Uh, at 12.15 in the afternoon, I was, uh, we'd just gone out to eat. Pastor took us uh, out to eat after the morning service. We were going to be here through Thursday. I'd left my dad behind. He was in hospice, but the nurse had been there on Friday and said, well, he's got at least a month. He's not even on any pain medication. My dad's health had deteriorated. He was a former brown belt in karate, a drill sergeant, two tours in Vietnam. But at this point in time, he had three aneurysms that they were watching. They'd already repaired two. He'd had one open heart surgery. He had four stints. He, had, he was deaf in one ear. He had bladder cancer, his incomplete and total uh, kidney failure. He had neuropathy and sugar diabetes, and his blood pressure wasn't good. He had all of that going on. 
When we found out that dad had bladder cancer, they said, well, because of his, at that time, fifth stage kidney failure, they couldn't do surgery, they couldn't do chemo, and they couldn't do radiation. Just take him home and keep him comfortable. But he probably had a year to live. People began to tell us the same thing that they always say, that we always say as Christians. Well, you know, the doctors say there's no hope, but he's the great physician. He can heal him. Can I tell you something? Now listen carefully. I want you to get this. That is a 100% true statement. He can heal him. It is just not completely accurate. And it is certainly not complete. Came down here, preached Sunday morning, went out to eat, came to the car, and I had 22 messages. My dad died at 12.15, right after we'd finished the service here, and had gone home to be with the Lord. The truth is, though, it's not, the, it's not that the Lord can heal. It's that the Lord will heal. Brother Harper, you're not making any sense now. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. On one side, you're saying it's a definite certainty that Jesus will, the great good shepherd, will heal. And on the other side, you're telling us that your dad died at 1215 on January the 28th. How can both of those things be true? Because you listen carefully to me. At 1216 on January the 28th, my dad could hear out of both ears. His kidneys were functioning just fine. There was no cancer in his bladder. He didn't have high blood pressure anymore. He had already been clothed of the glorified body like into his glorified body. He was already walking on a street of gold, already walking into the front door of his mansion. What I'm trying to tell you is the good shepherd has never walked out of an operating room and said, listen, we had to close him up because we couldn't fix the problem. I'm sorry. He's never looked at test results and said, listen, there's nothing we can do. Just make them comfortable. The good shepherd has never raised his hands and said, well, it's over. There's no hope because because the good shepherd is going to heal. If you know Christ as your personal savior, it's just a question of whether he heals you now in this life that is but a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away, or whether he's gonna wait until you're dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, the good shepherd is always going to take care of us. He's always going to protect us. There is no sin that he can't overcome. There is no sickness that he can't heal. There is no trouble that he can't fix. There is no water that he can't calm. I'm trying to tell you, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Not for a while, not for a year, forever. That's how you end a psalm. That's a crescendo. That's the hallelujah chorus. How else could you end the 23rd psalm than with forever? I will dwell. Whatever else happens, whatever Absalom does, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, at the end of the psalm, he's sleeping on the ground with a rock for a pillow with a son who wants to kill him. But he's not thinking about that at all anymore. He's just thinking about the shepherd. Where are you tonight, this morning, Christian? Take your eyes off your problems. Look at him through the eyes of the perfect shepherd, the personal shepherd. If you're a lost person this morning, a lot of good things in this psalm, wouldn't you say? A lot of wonderful promises. You could hear the Christians rejoicing in those promises. But if he's not your savior, he's just a stranger. If he's not your savior, then he's not your shepherd. 
But right now, this minute, nothing on this planet, Satan himself cannot stop you from receiving him as your personal Savior. And it's not a 12-step process. It's not that you come to church for 12 years and then all of a sudden the promises start coming true. No, no, no. The instant that you accept him as your Savior, everything in Psalm 23 is yours. And as the psalmist put it, forever. Why not trust him this morning? Wouldn't you like to have a shepherd like that? Because he's yours if you want him. Christian, the Bible is filled with people that come to altars and repent and confess sin. And yes, that probably needs to be done in every service. But do you know almost half the times in the Word of God that an altar... Our heads and close our eyes. No one looking around.